1: Your next stay. Find a stay for any of you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
2: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been! As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast podcast. And I'm Holly Fry. At the end of our recent episode on The Honey War, we read a listener mail from an Egyptologist about honorary transposition and hieroglyphics, and that led us into this little digression about how hard it can be to figure out how to pronounce words in languages that nobody speaks anymore. And I made this random aside about how I had thought way back when Holly and I first got on the podcast, I thought about doing an episode about the Great Vowel Shift, we have never gotten nearly so much response to any other random weird thing we said on the show <laughs> as we have about the Great Vowel Shift. I was astonished. Were you astonished? I, w- I who knew? I had no right. idea
1: people were like rabidly excited for this content.
0: Yeah, it was this astounding number of people that asked us to talk about it. Which we still we got another email over the weekend after this had already been like the outline had been written and everything. Uh, When I mentioned on Twitter that an astounding number of people had asked, more people asked after that. Only one person asked that we not do that. So I'm sorry, that person is outvoted. Um, (laughs) I just, I, I can't get over how many people have asked for it because this was really at the tail end of the show. To be candid, we know there are people who have checked out by that point. Like we know there are a lot of people who don't listen to listener mail. Uh, but every possible way people have to talk to us, they did to ask us to talk about the great <laughs> vowel shift. So the eyes have it today. We are going to talk about the great vowel shift, but because it is, like I said, a little inside baseball, 30 entire minutes about vowels, I think would be a little much for most people. So we're going to put it in the greater context of the history of English, of the English language. And that comes with its own caveat, which is that there are whole books about the history of the English language. My alma mater had a semester long literature class about it and it wasn't even just like a like it wasn't a 100 level literature class right with prerequisites um and uh, there's like there's a podcast called the history of English and that has run for 67 episodes so far. So obviously we are not going to talk about every single thing there is to mention in the history of English and we're not going to get too deep into the very technical linguistic terms that are used to describe a lot of it. What we are going to talk about is how the history of English runs alongside a greater story, which is basically all about conquering people and being conquered.
1: So the history of English begins before the arrival of Germanic peoples, who came to be known as the Anglo-Saxons in the British Isles. The Anglo-Saxons arrived in what is now England and Wales from the European continent. Some came peacefully, although others definitely arrived as invaders and conquerors.
0: According to Bede the Venerable, the Anglo-Saxons included three distinct groups, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. Their arrival in England started toward the middle of the 5th century, and the language that developed in the wake of their arrival is now known as Old English. Its roots come from a number of Germanic languages and their dialects, with the primary contributors being West Germanic, Old Frisian, Old Franconian, and Old High German.
1: Before the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons, the people of the British Isles spoke a variety of Celtic languages. It's also possible that some people spoke Latin since the Roman Empire had governed parts of Britain for about 350 years from the year 43 to the year 410. It's not completely clear, though, how well Latin survived after the end of the Roman rule in what the Empire referred to as Britannia in 410. Nor should all these different Celtic-speaking peoples be lumped together in one cultural group. The idea that the British Isles were once inhabited by a monolithic cultural group called the Celts is really an 18th century invention.
0: Yeah, all these different Celtic-speaking peoples had their own unique cultures and their own unique ways of living. They were not one sort of people known as the Celts. Several of the Celtic languages that existed in the British Isles when the Anglo-Saxons arrived, which are classified as the insular Celtic languages, still exist today. Welsh, Scottish, Gaelic, Irish, Cornish, and Manx, which is spoken in the Isle of Man, are all examples of insular Celtic languages. Celtic languages were once common on the European continent as well, but apart from Breton, which was really an insular Celtic language that was carried from the British Isles back to Brittany... Celtic languages didn't survive well on the continent beyond the 4th or 5th century. While several insular Celtic languages survive today, some thanks to intentional efforts to preserve them, all of the continental Celtic languages are extinct.
1: Insular Celtic languages uh, didn't wind up adding very many words to English, though. This is one reason why, if you do speak English but don't speak a Celtic language, trying to sound out a word from a Celtic language can be a completely baffling experience. It's possible that the insular Celtic languages had an influence on grammar and pronunciation in Old English. But when it comes to the individual words and the letters and sounds used to make them, there really was not a lot of sharing going on.
0: Yeah, I'm sure there is some, like a hilarious video somewhere that English speakers trying to pronounce Welsh. <laughs> not only does the like the spelling of Welsh words doesn't follow a pattern that English speakers recognize really well. The letters themselves are pronounced differently than they are in English. The Anglo-Saxons and their languages were firmly established in England by the 6th century. And there are lots of English words in use today that came from these Germanic languages, although they generally had different spellings and pronunciations at the time. A lot of these words are really short and they describe everyday objects and things. So Baker, beer, sheep, bird, eel, book, father, world, and right are all examples of English words that exist today that were also part of these Germanic Old English words. The words for England and English also come from these Germanic roots.
1: There were plenty of longer, more complex words in Old English as well, but the shortest words used for the most everyday things and ideas were the most commonly used and consequently had the most staying power in the evolution of the language. More than half of the thousand most common words in Old English still exist in the English language today.
0: Conversely, about 80% of the thousand most common words in English today came from Old English, which to me adds a delightful layer to Randall Monroe's book Thing Explainer, which is a book that explains complicated stuff using the only, only the 1000 most common words in English. So I like the idea of reading that book pretending that you're reading Old English instead.
1: But in spite of the simplicity of the Old English words that remain in English today, a lot of Old English was kind of complicated in a different way than how today's English is complicated. In Old English, verbs could change their position in the sentence for emphasis or grammatical reasons, and a number of inflections were used to change the meanings of words. Inflections still exist today. Adding an S to a noun to make it plural is an example of inflection, as is adding an ED to a verb to make it in the past tense. But Old English had a lot more inflections for a lot more reasons than modern English does, and applied them to a lot more parts of speech. Words in Old English were also often gendered in a way that they are not in modern English.
0: Germanic languages also aren't the only root of Old English, In the late 6th century, so 150 or 200 years after the Anglo-Saxon invasion of England began, Christian missionaries began arriving in the British Isles as well, and they brought with them a language that was not entirely new to the region, which was Latin.
1: Latin began to influence Old English, and the Latin alphabet was also used to write Old English, with the addition of a couple of characters to represent the TH sound, the most famous being the character thorn. The first Latin English glossaries date back to the year 700, and some scholars argue that this is really the birth of Old English as a language.
0: We still have some literature that was written in Old English around today. The most famous pieces are probably the epic poem Beowulf, which is one of my favorite things, and for prose, the writings of King Alfred the Great.
1: The next big changes to the English language were also the result of invasions. Starting in the 8th century, Scandinavians made their way to England, all the folks we broadly classify as Vikings. And while there are definitely English words that have Norse roots, most of this influence on the language itself didn't come along until a bit later, after the next big shift in the language, which we're going to talk about. But first, we are going to have a word from a sponsor.
0: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
4: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
0: So Old English was spoken in much of what's now known as England and Wales from roughly the 6th to the 11th centuries. And from there, it gradually shifted into Middle English, which is one of the languages associated with the medieval period in Britain. As we talked about at the top of the show, Old English
1: was the language invaders and colonists from the European continent brought to the island after the end of the Roman Empire in Britain. The shift into Middle English was the result of invasions as well. Middle English came about thanks to influences from the Normans, the Vikings, and Christian missionaries.
0: The Norman invasion was famously marked by past podcast subject, the Battle of Hastings, which took place in 1066. And the Battle of Hastings was also documented in the Bayou Tapestry, which was also another past podcast subject.
1: Over the next 100 years or so following the Battle of Hastings, English went through a number of shifts and revisions. Uh, Some scholars refer to this period as transitional English because so many different influences on the language were still making their way through how people really spoke and wrote.
0: A big shift was in grammar. The number of inflections dropped dramatically, particularly when it came to nouns. And a lot of the more complex, lengthy words from Old English that didn't survive until today were replaced by words from other languages. Basically, the languages being spoken by the various peoples who were invading England.
1: William the Conqueror, who invaded at the Battle of Hastings, spoke Norman French. And the ruling class that he brought with him did as well. Because of this French influence for a time, much of the literature written in England was largely in Anglo-Norman. Anglo-Norman also became the language favored by the nobility, the court system, and the schools as well. Some of the most famous works of literature from the Middle Ages were written in Anglo-Norman, including Tristan and Isolde and the Lay of Marie de France. The next most popular scholarly language in England was Latin, thanks to the influence of Christian missionaries.
0: Because of this prevalence of both French and Latin... And the fact that French and Latin have a lot in common, sometimes it's really hard to tell whether a word that exists in English today really came from French or Latin. This is particularly true because some French words are borrowed from Latin, and then the English words were borrowed from French. Regardless, though, following the Norman invasion, lots of words with French or Latin roots made their way into English, including peace, animal, imagination, and prison.
1: The Viking raids into England pretty much stopped after the Norman invasion. However, by the time they did, there were a lot of people in England, particularly Northern England, who spoke one of the early Scandinavian languages that would eventually grow into Swedish, Norwegian, Danish, and the like.
0: None of these languages gained a long-term foothold in England, but lots of English words come from Scandinavian roots that were started during this time. As with old English words that are still spoken today... Many of them are short, one or two syllable words that name everyday objects and ideas. Some of the nouns from Scandinavian, Scandinavian origins include cow, bull, root, and skin. Verbs include take, scare, flit, and want. The pronoun they also has Scandinavian origins.
1: Eventually, all of these influences coalesced into a language that, if you can read modern English, you can probably read as well. Although, it may be a bit more difficult. Uh, the words themselves tend to be familiar, even though their spellings and pronunciations are often inconsistent. By the 1300s, Middle English had become the favored language in England, and literature was being written in it. Some of the most famous works in Middle English include The Canterbury Tales, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and the Book of Marjorie Kemp, which is, of course, the subject of a past podcast. Uh, the first complete English translation of the Bible was in Middle English as well.
0: On a brief digression about Marjorie Kemp. That was one of the first episodes that I researched for the podcast. Um, and I had chosen to do it because it was something that I already had enough familiar- familiarity with that I felt like I could get into it and not be starting from absolute square one in one of the first podcasts I ever researched. And I went to get my college copy of the book of Marjorie Kemp off of the bookshelf and I opened it up and it was in Middle English. And I was like, "Uh oh, I, <laughs> I do not... <laughs> I do not have time to puzzle my way through Middle English for this podcast, and so I had to order a Modern English version of it. One of the reasons that I found it difficult was that Middle English was, in a lot of ways, not very standardized. Surviving manuscripts from the era vary a lot from one another, even when they are literally copies of the exact same piece of literature. In addition to lots of inconsistencies in spelling and grammar, there were specific dialects that existed all over the British Isles, and many people still spoke a Celtic language as their primary or only language during this time. Toward the
1: end of the 15th century, English had its next big shift, and we are going to talk about that after we have another pause for
0: a sponsor break. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
4: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
5: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa?
0: After Middle English came, perhaps not surprisingly, early modern English. The King James Bible and Shakespeare's plays are both in early modern English. And as with Middle English, if you can read modern English today, things that are written right now, you can probably read it too, but it might take your brain a little bit more work. In a lot of ways,
1: the shift from Old English to Middle English seems a lot more dramatic than from Middle English to Early Modern English. And that makes a lot of logical sense. The transition from Old English to Middle English was brought about in large part by the influence of multiple other languages on Old English. But the shift from Middle English to Early Modern English was a lot more about standardizing a language that already existed. English vocabulary continued to grow, but mostly through the inclusion of more words from languages people were already familiar with or other Romance languages that had similar roots.
0: This was the rise of pedantry in the English language. Different scholars set about trying to set rules specifically for English and the nitpicking other writers who broke those rules. It's a trend that continues to annoy editors today. Various writers, including 17th century writer and critic John Dryden, decreed that English should follow the rules of Latin and then effectively applied Latin structure to English. So rules like don't end sentences with prepositions are made up from during this time to try to make English conform to Latin rules. Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift did a lot of writing about the need to standardize English as well. And consensus among linguists today is that you can try to permanently affix a language all you want, but as long as people are actually speaking it, it will continue to evolve.
1: Beginning in the middle of the 17th century people started proposing that there be a formal academy of English to document the language and make sure it stayed, quote, pure. This didn't happen, but through the 16th and 17th centuries, dictionaries did flourish. English gradually became standardized.
0: Perhaps inconveniently, this exact same time that people were writing dictionaries and standardizing rules for how to speak and spell English was happening at the same time as people were completely shifting how they pronounced things. Right at the same time that people were literally documenting how to spell, people were starting to say things differently from how they were spelled. To be clear, this shift did take hundreds of years to play out. Pronunciations were shifting back in the 12th century. But just as the language was finishing that shift into the 16th century, people were writing dictionaries based on the old spellings of words that no longer matched how we say them.
1: (laughs) And a piece of this was the Great Vowel Shift, essentially where people pronounced long vowels moved up and back in their mouths. And the reason that uh, Tracy had described this as being a little too inside baseball is because it's really difficult to both research and describe without a working knowledge of linguistics and phonology.
0: We're going to assume... <laughs> Most of our listeners don't have that. And I'm so I'm going to take an extremely simple, basic approach to explaining this. If you ever had to memorize the prologue to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in Middle English, you probably remember the first lines, which start, One of that April with his shores sota, the drought of March hath pierced to the rota. And in modern English, that's when April, with his showers sweet with fruit, the drought of March has pierced to the root.
1: So, during the great vowel shift, for example, rota became pronounced as root. April became April.
0: Or, to look at it with some other words, the word height, like how tall you are today, would have been pronounced more like heat. And feet, the things at the end of people's legs, would have been pronounced fet. And hate, like really disliking pedantry, would have been pronounced more like hot.
1: And these were not the only shifts in pronunciation that went on in early modern English. There are whole other vowel pronunciations that used to be unique but now sound identical. People also stopped pronouncing a lot of consonants, as you could probably hear in the Canterbury Tales example. But the early modern period is also when we stopped pronu- pronouncing the K, the G, and the H in the word night. So that's why that we would, don't think. That we would have been. Ch- A much more complicated word. Uh, We also stopped saying the B in lamb and the T in thistle. Basically a lot, but not all, of the complete discrepancies between how we spell things and how we say them in English arose in early modern English.
0: Apparently, for all the listeners at home who cannot see the outline, this is where I also had discrepancies in typing. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of theories for why all of this happened. There are scholars who blame migration that followed the Black Death. Others just say it's a natural drift in how we pronounce things, and it's still going on today. The general consensus, though, is basically it's a mystery. We don't really know why everybody changed how they said their vowels. There are also some naysayers among linguists who say that this whole thing is extremely exaggerated and that it wasn't nearly as pronounced or important as people... uh, position it as today. And to be clear, people did figure out the vowel shift by examining things like verse, like what words rhymed with what other words, uh, and misspellings in documents with the idea that if you were spelling something the way it sounded, the misspelling that you make would change over time as the vowel pronunciation shifted. So to some extent, our very understanding of these pronunciations here is kind of an educated guess.
1: Toward the end of the early modern period, people continued to be very concerned with standardizing and perfecting English. In the 1800s, professionally printed materials became increasingly standard in their spelling, grammar, and style. But people's personal papers continued to be all over the place. Uh, people have made much of the fact that Jane Austen's handwritten drafts are full of what are considered errors, but really that's how ordinary non-pedants wrote at the time.
0: Yeah, people were much more casual in their personal correspondence than the increasingly standard professionally printed work. From the end of the early modern period, English progressively became more and more like the language that we recognize today. It's probably safe to say that most people find Jane Austen and Charles Dickens, who were writing in late modern English, easier to read than William Shakespeare or Alexander Pope, who wrote in early modern English, and much, much easier than Marjorie Kemp, who was writing in middle English, And a million times easier than the Epic of Beowulf as written in Old English, which I'm not sure I could make out without a dictionary.
1: (laughs) I definitely could not. Uh, While the development of English into a modern language is most about who invaded England and then an effort to standardize the result, English today is also defined by where England went after that. The most obvious is the variations in slang, pronunciation, and dialects in places that were or are still part of the British Empire. English does not sound quite the same in Australia, Canada, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, the United States, India. In each of these places, English also has its own loanwords that are unique to the languages being spoken there before English arrived.
0: But it's not just about the nuances in what's considered standard English in all of these different countries. There are also Creoles and dialects that have, involved, that have evolved in tandem with English all over the world. As an example, in the Americas and the Caribbean, there are English-based Creoles that, e- that evolved as a result of the transatlantic slave trade. They draw from English, West African languages, and sometimes the, sometimes the language of native peoples who were living in the area Gullah, Jamaican Patois, Cayman Creole, and Bahamian Creole are all Creoles that draw from English, African languages, and sometimes each other. Australian Creole and Pitkern are examples of Creoles that draw from English and Native people's languages in the Pacific.
1: Pretty much anywhere English speakers have colonized, there are also dialects of English that have their own rules about grammar and pronunciation. One example is African-American vernacular English, which has a lot in common with Southern English dialects.
0: Uh, so that is an extremely, extremely condensed history of the English language. Uh, thanks in part to how many people wanted us to talk about the Great Vowel Shift. If you are a linguist, this was probably the, the stuff that is way... Like, you know way more stuff than what we just said.
1: Uh I suddenly found myself mired in. Gosh, what things am I really pedantic about?
0: There's really only one. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, what's really funny, not funny, it's more annoying uh to me, is that sometimes we'll put, like, let's say, for example, we'll put an article on our Facebook page, and the article will end the headline with a preposition. And someone will come and make a comment about how one should not end sentences with prepositions. And then I will provide numerous sources about how that's actually fine. And then 90% of the time, the person just doubles down into how that, that is the right way. And you should make sure that not to apply made up to rules to English. And I'm like, but the things that ru- you are, are complaining <laughs> about is a made up rule. <laughs> yeah. Like there is definitely great value in learning how to speak and write well. These are important skills to have in life. But then you also really should think about how the way that people talk and the language that they use and the way people speak and write also reflects where they are from and their upbringing, how much education they actually had access to, their class, their ethnicity. Like there's a whole lot that goes into how people talk and write. So uh, pedantically nitpicking strangers on the Internet about how they spelled something wrong is perhaps not the best use of anyone's time unless you are literally that person's English teacher and the thing you are nitpicking on the Internet is literally their class assignment that they did for you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: You know, for some people, that's their windmill uh, that they tilt at. I don't, uh, I, I find, and I think you probably do as well, like people are surprised that I'm not one of those. They're like, but you're an editor. And I'm like, yeah, but if you read yeah. it long enough you realize that even really fabulous well educated people make typos and mistakes when they're putting together manuscripts like it, it, did you understand what they were getting
0: at like you can see the is, other yeah. stuff if you're doing it you know <laughs> along the guidelines for like publication that that's usually my criteria are uh, was the meaning understood <laughs> That's only that's a criterion somebody is gonna write about. Anyway, I have some listener mail that's not about pedantry. Fantastic. It's about the Honey War, which is the same episode that inspired this whole podcast. And it is from uh I am not sure if she says her name Tamara or Tamara. I have known people who spell their names this way and have said it both ways. Uh and she says this might be a little late because I tend to hoard episodes for a few weeks before listening to them. But Loburn Boggs, the Missouri governor with the dispute with Iowa, has another claim to fame. In 1838, he issued Missouri Executive Order 44, which made it legal to drive Mormons out of the state. And if necessary, kill them. And then she quotes from it. We therefore agree that after timely warning and receiving an adequate compensation for what little property they cannot take with them, they refuse to leave us in peace as they found us. We agree to use such means as may be sufficient to remove them. And to that, we each pledge to each other our bodily powers, our lives, fortunes and sacred honors. Basically, it's legal to steal their land and kill them if they object. This order was in effect until 1976, 137 years later. Classy man. Thought you might be interested in that tidbit of information. Uh, and then she sent some thank yous and some other cool stuff. So, uh, thank you so much, Tamara. Tamara was one of several people who wrote about Missouri Executive Order 44, um, which we didn't mention in that episode for several reasons. <laughs> one of the reasons is that episode was selected because its it's actual events are kind of comical. There are plenty of other things that were going around in the world at that time that were not comical, and there were also plenty of things that were going around in Missouri and Iowa that were not comical. But that particular th- thing is kind of a comedy of errors, and we had been in a series of dark episodes when that one came out. <laughs> yes. So... uh the reason we chose that story would it was to share something that had a little bit more levity in it, which was why we didn't get into all of the other ancillary things that you could talk about that were horrifying and awful. Um, but I did want to mention it since we did get several emails from folks, um, mostly calling Governor Boggs a jerk, which suits. So if you would <laughs> like to I watch- you'd like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is we or also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. If you would like to to just have a little fun, have a little fun with your day that's related to this podcast, come to our parent company's website, HowStuffWorks.com. Put the word comma in the search bar. You'll find an article called 10 Completely Wrong Ways to Use a Comma. So if you want to enjoy that for your own personal gloating about language, you are welcome. Uh, maybe don't then employ that information at strangers on the Internet. If you would like to come to our website, it is MissedInHistory.com. We have show notes. We have an archive of every episode we've ever done. We have uh, some tips on how to search, search the archive for old episodes. We also have a newly written FAQ because we get asked a lot of the same questions. And so I made a document to answer them all. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or mythsandhistory.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
5: Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: It's been almost 3,000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.